Today on the show, I talked to Danny Thornley. He's an ex-Unleash keynote speaker. He's also an expert on Russia and Ukraine. It's quite a serious subject, hence lack of jaunty theme music. But nevertheless, it's very interesting to hear what he's got to say on what's going on. We discuss what's going on immediately in Ukraine, uh, the future for the country, and a bit of a wider chat about the economic situation and the fallout there. My frame of reference on expert Russian speakers isn't that wide, but you'd be hard-pressed to find many more people in the world who know as much about the situation as him. So it was really great he gave up his time, and it is a very interesting conversation. This is Unleashcast. Okay, we have a very special edition of Unleashcast today. What I normally do is, after the recording, I uh, ask the interviewee for a little bio so I can introduce them and stitch an introduction on the front, but I'm not going to do it for this one. I'm going to ask you to do it yourself, actually, Danny, because I don't want to misrepresent or underplay your experience in this area. So could you just tell uh, the, the the audience, the listeners, and possibly also the viewers in time, a bit about who you are and and, uh, and your experience in the area that we're going to be talking about? With pleasure, John, and it's been a pleasure to work with you and your colleagues on the show over the years in the uh, live events pre-COVID. Looking forward to the future. I'm a British national, but I've been living in Austria for 38 years in Vienna. And uh, for what it's worth, I studied at Oxford University and I have a PhD in Soviet political economy, which, um, yeah. And uh, I work and I've worked with for 25, 30 years about 300 corporations doing business and giving advice globally, but very much on Central Europe, CMEA. EMEA region, Europe, Middle East, Africa. And the big baby in that was uh, the Soviet Union and Russia. And I'm working intensely with 300 clients uh, on the Russian market, CIS. Obviously, it's very tumultuous and we're doing scenario planning and so forth. My first trip to the Soviet Union was 1978. I was a very young man then, by the way, but it's a long time ago. And uh, in normal times, uh, pre-COVID, and for a window since COVID, I spend about 40% of my time in Russia. I have many friends and colleagues in the business world, uh, all the major companies you can imagine. And I have many normal Russian friends who are teachers, nurses, and night watchmen. That's me, John. Thank you. Um, to, to just say at the outset that Obviously, the most important people that we're thinking of in this situation are the civilians in Ukraine and soldiers involved in the conflict as well, uh, who, who, anyone affected by it. But we're going to be talking also today about kind of the economic knock-ons and, and the effects of, of what's happening with, with uh, the Russia-Ukraine invasion. My first question is, with all your, you know, undoubted decades of experience, is this something that you could have foreseen is this something that was sort of point it was put everything was pointing in this direction or what's your perspective on how how, how quickly it happened and uh sure. yeah anything around that thanks john well first of all i'll say you know and we'll talk about economics business maybe and other things and you talked about the human cost this is the worst crisis of any kind i've seen for the region uh in 40 years there's no shadow of a doubt. It's economic, political, social, psychological, emotional, uh, everything. 
I think it is the biggest existential threat to liberalism and social democracy that we face since the end of the Second World War. Um, Europe and the West has come together pretty strongly uh, and also uh, efficiently. The sanctions on the Russian central bank were a surprise for everybody and really knocked Putin uh, sideways. That's when he declared his threat of nuclear war, by the way. His central bank was frozen. He can't do anything against the dollar or the Wall Street. So the threat comes a nuclear war, et cetera, et cetera. I think Europe will also diverse itself, no matter what, from uh, Russian energy, which will have a seismic impact on European economy and a very negative one, medium term for Russia. But uh, also, I would say at the start, answering your question sort of, that domestic, internationally, we will see internationally, it will be bad and negative for years. And that's the best case. Although there is talk, of course, of a ceasefire, neutrality, and a dirty compromise deal, which might come about. And that's the only thing. However, in any scenario, the developments internally with Russia are fearsome. And I believe that the current regime in Russia has started and is taking Russia and its Russian people into a very, very dark place. Um, there are other ways of describing it, but for public domain, I'll leave it at that. Your question, John, no one foresaw it. And if they say they did, they're fibbing. Um, I predicted weeks and weeks before and days before that um, there was a 50% chance uh, nothing would happen. There was a 45% chance that there'd be some military incursion from the Donbass. But how that would develop was pretty tricky to imagine and not good. And I rated the chance for full-scale invasion, what we have, as 3 to 4%. One of my portfolio investment clients and a friend in New York uh, said, Danny, we made the same estimate, and it's cost us $400 million so far and counting, counting by the day. Other investment funds have lost and will have lost billions and billions going forward. Their portfolios are trillions, so a few billion here or there is the chicken feed. But uh, very, very few people saw it because it defied logic, rationality, and common sense. So on one level, anybody who predicted this would not happen rationally got it wrong. But the consequences of these actions, which are myriad and innumerably negative for Russia, are taking place and will take place. So if there's any benefit in early hindsight, uh, everybody got the uh, forecast wrong, but everybody got the understanding of the consequences right, except the Russian leadership. And they may realize now that they're uh, painted themselves three or four times over into a corner and how they get out of that is going to be very difficult indeed. Um, my next question is about the Ukrainian economy. How do you think it can survive, adapt, or what, what's the sort of medium and long-term outlook? Sure. I think, um, you know, the, the best case, which has developed in the last couple of days, which one has to be very cautious about and sceptical, is that there could be a ceasefire, neutrality, non-NATO, which 
which could have been done a, you know, a few months ago without this. But then you've got the sticking block of Donbass and um, Crimea. There could be some dirty deal about sovereignty and federation on that as well. Um, so that's the best case scenario. But nothing then, the West doesn't say, well, everything's fine and dandy now. The psychology has changed. And it will take months and months and months for a formal peace treaty and months or years for sanctions on Russia to be uh, removed. I think there is still a big likelihood and probability that Russia tries to grind down a military victory. I put victory in um, inverted commas. A puppet regime is installed with President Ivan Ivanov. Um, massive economic comprehensive sanctions are imposed on this puppet regime of Ukraine. A government in exile is found in Poland or Berlin, headed by uh, the hero of our times, President Zelensky, or not, who may die in the rubble of Kiev, which will be a moral outrage for the West. And let's see where that uh, horrific scenario uh, could go. So in this scenario, John, there is no economic future for Ukraine. It's an occupied or semi-occupied divided country with comprehensive global sanctions slapped on it, entirely economically dependent on Russia, with an ongoing partisan insurgency war taking place. This is the horror scenarios for the Russian military. They either try and find a dirty ceasefire now, or they're going to get bogged down for the next three, five years. Russia has a track record of frozen conflicts. North Ossetia with Georgia, Transdenistra with Moldova. But this is a bloody big thing. To have a frozen conflict of 40-odd million people in continental Europe, Eurasia, is um, you know, beyond imagination. And I think beyond the management of the Russian economy and the Russian military. Um, so the economic outlook in that mid-case bad scenario, John, is not good. And um, it will be two or three years of bleak occupation, sanctions, low economic growth, no Western investment. In fact, I'm hearing a lot. We know the two million plus uh, refugees who have left Ukraine. By the way, just to let you know, it's difficult to find truck drivers in Central Europe at the moment because most of them were Ukrainians. and They've gone back to Ukraine to fight. 175,000 people have crossed the border from Poland into Ukraine. And we see and hear these stories uh, as well. Um, I think on the economic side, we're seeing uh, a lot of the people leaving are talented, well-educated. And I've heard already that they're coming to Western companies and saying, we want to do our startup in Poland or Czech or Slovakia. And also negotiations are starting for fintech companies in Ukraine to set up and reestablish themselves in Central Europe. The best case scenario, back to that of the, the dirty compromise, is then, of course, that there'd be massive reconstruction of Ukraine uh, by the West and inter in international Western institutions, IMF, World Bank, Development Bank, and so on. So that would be a positive. Um, as I say, it's too early to say about this positive ceasefire scenario. Um, at the moment, I give it a 20% chance. Uh, three days ago, I gave it 1% chance. So let's see where we go. You published a recent research paper at the end of February um, about the conflict as it was then. Um, one line I caught from the end of it was about kind of the corporate knock-on 
corporate costs will be higher and margins squeezed for longer in terms of the supply chain. So how long do you think the long-term effects of this will, will go on in terms of how it's going to reverberate around the world to the West, uh, America and further? Sure, sure. Um, well, we all know, and oh, by the way, uh, until February the 24th, my clients in Russia were reporting stupendously good results. 2021, for many of my clients, was the best year in decades in Russia. Uh, one of our automotive clients said, Danny, that was our case. January was the best year month in 40 years only beaten by February of 2022. So that's where we've come uh, in Russia. The impact on Russia will be massive. Instead of 2.8% uh, growth this year, minus 5, minus 7, minus 10. But on the global and central European economy, what tends to happen, I'm doing it. I notice the IMF are doing it and big institutional banks are doing it. We're all doing our revised projections for the global and Eurasian uh, GDP outlook. What tends to happen, I'm afraid, John, is you make a revised estimate downwards, and then you're obliged a few days or a few weeks later to make another revision downwards. And uh, that's where I feel we're going. Uh, for glo the global business environment, as I'm, you well know, and the audience well knows, before this crisis was for rising sticky inflation consumer prices above trend, and input costs, production costs, uh, at high elevated record levels uh, across the world. Supply chains couldn't adapt to the boom recovery of 21 from the collapse of 2020, uh, but it looked viable. Interest rates were going to go up and we'd have slower secular growth. And this was the prediction and plan. And things would get better. <laughs> Already, we revised it from things will get better in summer 2022 to things will get better end of 2022, the start of lower inflation, better growth. However, now, uh, with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have a deteriorating situation where all numbers, which were trending this way before, uh, have deteriorated. So every market in the world, I believe, I can't think of any, every market in the world will have less growth this year than we'd expected three or four weeks ago. And that was on a downward trend. And inflation, because of supply chains, logistics and so on, supply chains, inflation will stay higher much longer than we'd anticipated. So that any improvement on the inflationary front will be postponed to the spring or summer of next year. Stagflation, of course, is the term often used. I don't think we're in for hyperinflation because the central banks are more adept at managing it. We may not get the stag in the sense of on the numbers at the moment that I'm projecting for the European and global economy and the IMF and the World Bank today, we still expect growth. The good news is 2021 was so high the revised 2022 was not bad, and even the revised revised 22 is not into negative territory, not yet. Um, we will have, of course, and that you know, the balancing act to the central banks now. We've got inflation, it's sticky before Ukraine. We're going to raise rates and we'll manage inflation, it will come down. 
Now, of course, to avoid stagflation, the central banks have to be very more sensitive than they would have been. Yes, we want to raise rates. Yes, we've got to control inflation. But my God, we can't plunge our weakening economies into stag, the deflationary environment there. So this is the challenge. We will see, I think, the US, the Federal Reserve, raised rates yesterday. They've said more to come. We expected that. We knew that. And that will probably certainly help the dollar. But rates globally in Europe and the UK will start to tick up. Quantitative easing is a thing of the past. And I think that's the model. Less growth, higher inflation, uh, higher interest rates, more political risk, existential threats. Happy days. Um, I've got one more question. Well, one more kind of thing to add to this. It's difficult to want to end these things on a high or find some sort of hope. And I don't want to be flipping about it, obviously. I heard sto- I've heard stories and I've seen stories of uh, people using Airbnb, for example, to send money to Ukrainian families with no intention of staying in the places in Ukraine, but just as a direct way of using technology to kind of transfer money for families that need it, who are caught in the crisis, in the conflict. From your experience, are you hearing any such kind of stories of hope or 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 rallying in terms of how the bigger cities in Ukraine are kind of being able to deal with this this conflict at all in Kyiv or other cities? Surprisingly, some links are being kept open and of course the transportation and military equipment is coming into the country, which is another indication of the military mismanagement of the the Russian military. Um, But I think things are are more bleak uh, in general. Uh, what we have seen is the massive uh, surge of affection uh, for the Ukrainian people, uh, Ukrainian refugees. Um, it is universal, uh, perhaps unprecedented. Um, wise heads have been telling me, Danny, you know, the polls and the polls have told me, yes, we're accepting the Ukrainians and many of them will want to take jobs. It's a different refugee surge, uh, etc. But things will get tighter and more tense and fraught as time goes on, as uh, the European economies come down, there'll be envy and um, resentment in societies. Human beings are human beings. But the very positive, I think, is both the political economic response and the emotional uh, response to these people who face a a tremendous tragedy. Uh, I too, John, you know, this is my most sober presentation I ever give, and I've given many of them, uh, three or four a day uh, when I'm talking about clients. But normally I'm a very, uh, you know, lighthearted, funny guy with a great sense of humor. Uh, There is one story that I love, and um, on the the lighter side is that, um, you know, the consequences, negative consequences to Russia are, as I said, uncountable. The contingency planning of Russia and the Russian leadership was negligent and they haven't seen hardly anything of what's uh, happening. And they did not foresee the following. The Global Cat Federation, and I didn't know there was a federation globally for cats, meow, The Global Cat Federation has suspended and banned all Russian cats from all activities and competitions within the Federation. Now, the Kremlin didn't see that one coming. Uh, More semi-seriously, there are 31 million cats in Russia 
Uh, I know this, I work with three or four pet food companies. There are 19 million dogs. So what the Russian elite have done with their invasion is they've um, alienated 31 million cat owners in Russia. And now cat owners globally are pretty psychotic people. No, 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 no offense to, you know, I'm sure if you own a cat, you're a nice person, but you know what cat owners are like. So you got 31 disgruntled Russian cat owners, and maybe that will be the tide for the change in the future. Thanks so much for your time and uh, and the insight on um, this whole situation. I I spoke to you around Christmas um, just to sort of catch up and see how we could work together in 2022, having watched one of your previous Unleashed keynotes, which was just brilliant. Um, you know, no slides, just speaking to the people, just off the bat, very funny. I didn't predict this was the first thing that we'd be talking about Um and I'm kind of sorry it is, but it's it's great to get your insight on this today. Thanks. Thank you very much, Sean. And I'm looking forward to working with you and your colleagues throughout the year and uh, all good luck to them. And, you know, I always say to when I'm doing a Russia presentation to Russia CIS, you know, all, all good luck. And I, I really do mean it, of course, now to all our friends across uh, Russia, former Soviet Union, Central Europe as well. But uh, all of us need to uh, take care and stay sane.